0: At 7.30 on the morning of Saturday the 1st of July 1916, or so we're usually told, whistles blew along a 16-mile stretch of British trenches near the River Somme in northern France. The First World War was nearly two years old and had sunk into a grim battle of attrition along hundreds of miles of trenches. That morning, apparently in a bid to break the stalemate, the British army launched its biggest attack yet. According to the usual story,
1: 120,000 tin-hatted heads appear above the parapet. Climbing out, British soldiers begin to walk in steady, straightish lines toward the German trenches. Their officers have told them that there are no Germans left. A week of fearsome bombardment by the British artillery has seen to that.
0: The British commander-in-chief, General Douglas Haig, had confidently predicted or so we're led to believe, that his infantry could break right through the German lines. Finally, once the Germans were in disorder and the worst of the danger was over, the cavalry would appear and ride to a famous victory. Haig, you understand, was a cavalry officer. As that day unfolded, it was apparent that Haig
1: and his officers had made a ghastly miscalculation. Within moments of the British whistles, German machine guns began their fateful and the British soldiers began to fall. Within minutes, tens of thousands of men were killed and wounded. By nightfall, the British army had suffered 57,000 casualties, nearly half of those who'd set out. Virtually nothing had been gained. It was the worst day in British army history.
0: The question is, how such a catastrophe could ever have happened? Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebone. <laughs>
1: We're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
0: So, get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens.
1: The 1st of July 1916 was the first day in the Battle of the Somme, the biggest offensive yet launched against the Germans by the British and the French. But that first day ended with 57,000 British casualties. It was the worst day in the history of the British army. Nevertheless, the Battle of the Somme dragged on until the middle of November 1916 and by then 419,654 men from Britain and her empire were either dead or wounded and that's just from this battle alone. So were two hundred two thousand five hundred sixty-seven French, and so far as anyone can discover, since there are no complete official figures, somewhere between five and six hundred thousand German soldiers.
0: The Germans were all on higher ground. Remembered Private Roy Beeling of the Wiltshire Regiment, he was near La Boisselle, a village at the centre of the British front, quotes. and they could see us all coming down in a single file. Perhaps a thousand of us going to this trench. And they started shelling. One shell pitched right in front of me and knocked out Sergeant Viney and two or three more. We had to keep going. And we had to step over one and step over another to carry on. But we had to keep going. And that was even before Roy Beeling got to the front line where he picks up the story. The Germans had a machine gun trained on it, going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, traversing and coming round every couple of minutes. And the bullets were cutting the sandbags on the parapet, just as if they were cutting them with a knife.
1: At the Battle of the Somme, the line of the German trenches was eventually pushed back about six miles, but it was nowhere near enough to break through their defences. The war would drag on for another two years, until the Germans were finally forced to abandon their trenches in a desperate bid to close out the war before they ran out of food and supplies, and before the Americans could arrive in any significant numbers. Well, that's another story we'll have to come back to at the History Cafe. After all, why did the Americans decide to join the war? We suspect it have more than a little to do with protecting their loans and investments to the British and French governments.
0: If you want to understand why the Battle of the Somme was such a disaster for the British, and especially that first horrifying day, then you should take a trip to the battlefields. You'll need to go with a guide who can tell you what happened, because only a few of the battle sites are marked Everything is now green, a quiet landscape gently rolling between low hills and little farms and pretty villages. We went there together. In fact, John has taken many people there.
1: Once you know the story and you stand where the British and Imperial soldiers stood, the whole thing suddenly becomes not only vividly real, but also much more shocking. Look around, you get a terrible sense of exposure to the German guns and the horrifying odds the men were expected to accept. It's quite quickly and completely obvious from what's in front of your eyes that much of the British battle plan was ludicrous from the start. It makes you believe that the cause of the tragedy was sustained and breathtaking dereliction by the officers at the expense of the men, something that could profoundly have changed British society and that all of us
0: should understand. The appalling generalship, the generals of the British army, has come to be known as lions led by donkeys. Though in fact, that phrase dates from the Crimean War. And of course, armies have always complained about their officers. The Arabs are supposed to have said that an army of sheep led by a lion would defeat an army of lion led by a sheep. The question is, is this what caused the slaughter on the Somme?
1: As you make your way along the battlefields, you notice that many of the professional guides are themselves ex-soldiers. Now, of course, that adds a whole new dimension. My first guide was an ex-soldier, and I'll never forget, standing outside the village of La Boiselle, perhaps exactly where Private Roy Beeling had stood. And my guide told me that in 1916, the German guns were deadly at two miles and then he pointed out the German emplacements up on the slopes ahead, perhaps a mile away. You could still see their shadows in the ploughed soil. Ah, Beeling was right. Where we were standing, we wouldn't have had a chance. Further along, outside the village of Serres, my guide explained the principle of crossfire, raking machine guns diagonally across a battlefield, increasing their effect dramatically. We were surrounded by the graves of the young British volunteers, It would only made it a few yards from the trenches and it made you sick in the pit of your stomach. You could almost hear, still rising among the skylarks, the cries of those men as they died slowly over several days.
0: But many in the British Army and many military historians have a completely different interpretation of the tragedy on the Somme. It goes like this. Anybody could see, they argue, that the German defences were far too strong to be broken in a single assault. This was, they say, iron industrial warfare on a scale that nobody had ever witnessed before. Of course it took time to understand this new situation. In fact, in 1916, the war was less than two years old. It would, say these historians, take two more years of bloody but necessary experiments before the British finally came up with a way to defeat the Germans. Don't blame Hague and the generals, they say. They were just doing their best.
1: Uh, Well, having lived through many months of a pandemic, as Britain has suffered among the worst infection rates in the world, it strikes a rather uncomfortably familiar note. Don't blame the politicians, we're told, just because tens of thousands of people have died. Uh, This is the first pandemic since the Spanish flu of 1918. They're just doing their best. Actually, there were equally deadly flu pandemics in 1957, 1968. But all this does is simply beg the question, if this is the best they can do, Are they the right people to be in
0: charge? But according to the alternative version of what happened at the Somme, General Haig was doing his best. He always understood perfectly well that the battle was never going to end in a simple breakthrough and victory. The point, we're told, is that by the time the battle was over, not in one day, but 141 days of slaughter later, the heart of the German army had been broken. Hundreds of thousands of trained Germans had been killed. In particular, they included huge numbers of German officers. And this was crucial. In the German army, officers served at the front and not, as in the British army, behind desks safely located miles behind the lines. And this cadre of senior German men would be impossible to replace. It was now just a matter of time before the German army would lose its shape and its discipline and be ripe for defeat. It would take, as it turned out, two more years. But according to this version of the story, the terrible British sacrifice on the Somme was a ghastly but necessary turning point. In the end, it had been worth every last gasp and tear and broken life and destroyed family. So we have two
1: totally different explanations for the slaughter on the Somme. One is that Haig and his generals cruelly and culpably threw hundreds of thousands of British and Imperial soldiers at the deadly steel of the German defences in a vain and foolish hope that the sheer numbers of men would overwhelm the German guns.
0: The other is that we should cut Haig and the generals some slack. They were doing their best. Trench warfare was new and it took time to work it out. The only route to victory was to win the body count. To wear the other side down, bit by bloody bit, until only you were left standing. In this interpretation, the Somme was a necessary, uncalculated sacrifice that fatally weakened the German army.
1: So let's see which of these two interpretations stands up. <laughs>
0: Ever since the First World War itself, there have been two distinct interpretations of why the Battle of the Somme in 1916 ended in a terrible slaughter of British and Imperial soldiers. One version was put around at the time by politicians like David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill, who personally detested the British Commander-in-Chief Douglas Haig. According to them, Haig had conceived a ludicrous and savage plan to throw thousands of men, protected only by tin hats, into the teeth of the German defences. The intention was to break through and bring trench warfare to an end. But whatever measures Haig said he had taken to prepare the ground, in particular an eight-day artillery bombardment ahead of the advance, they were obviously and scandalously inadequate
1: while the other version originated with Haig himself, particularly in a dispatch of the 23rd of December 1916, about a month after the fighting of the Somme had finally petered out. Haig insisted that it had all been just, quotes, the opening of the wearing-out battle. The death and injury of so many soldiers, he said, had been a terrible but necessary exercise in breaking the back of the German army. Keep up the pressure, and in time it would be defeated. This was the version subsequently favoured by Hague staff officers and is still accepted by many military historians today. So, which of these versions is closer to the truth?
0: As soon as you begin to research the Battle of the Somme, you discover that almost everything you thought you knew about it was wrong. The whistles didn't all go at 7.30 that morning. British and Imperial soldiers had already been climbing silently out of their trenches for hours.
1: But it wasn't even really a British battle. What few British books tell you is that the French were actually in charge on the Somme. More remarkable is that just to the south of the British army, the initial French attack on the 1st of July, 1916, went ahead smoothly and with complete success. They took all their objectives and lost comparatively few men. Even more remarkably, one or two British commanders who got to know and admire the French also achieved every one of their objectives. Along a significant section of the front, there was in fact a breakthrough. On the very first day, it left the French looking across and recording how appalled they were at the, quote, amateur and, quote, infantile way the rest of the British officers were conducting their
0: affairs. All of which complicates the question a bit. This is not just a simple question of, did Haig and the generals know what they were doing? But more precisely... Why didn't they make use of the expertise that was clearly available to the French and to a certain number of their own commanders? And this is a question, as we shall see, that goes to the very heart of the way the British army was being run.
1: Actually, there are those who say that the French had it easier for various reasons at the southern part of the line. Uh, We don't think that's true, and we'll come back to that later. But let's start with the most basic question of all. Why on earth was the British army in the terrible situation that led to the Battle of the Somme in the first place? Whatever the heroic story that was later told, faced with the initial German invasion of Belgium and France in August 1914, the French and the British armies had at first run away in something that looks very much like uncoordinated panic. One British commander died of a heart attack and three others had some kind of breakdown. Douglas Haig himself, he was then a corps commander, retreated so fast that he abandoned his wounded and virtually lost touch with the rest of the army. We talk about it in our series on the outbreak of the war.
0: Only once Paris itself was threatened and the German army, having badly miscalculated the strategic and logistical challenges of invading through Belgium, began to slow down, did the British and French pull themselves together and begin to push the invader back. Actually, of course, it was Kitchener who went to Paris and told them all to pull themselves together.
1: Anyway, now the Germans dug in. They literally excavated 600 miles of trenches from the Channel Coast to the Swiss border. They eventually built, in fact, an elaborate network of trenches stretching back into the distance, with two and often three main lines of defence up to two miles apart, and innumerable deep communication lines in between. They laid down entanglements of barboire and set up machine guns and defied their enemies to attack. This wasn't fighting over a trench, it was, or it became, over the initial months, defence in formidable depth. Opposite, a couple of hundred yards to the west, the French and the British dug themselves in too and tried to work out what to do.
0: But here was the catch. The retreating German army had a crucial advantage. As it retreated, it was able to choose exactly where it would make it stand. Northern France and Belgium, an area collectively known by the historic name of Flanders, is mostly flat, which was the reason the Germans had originally chosen it as their route for invasion. But there are low rolling hills, Sometimes there's a quarry or some other natural feature that offers some strategic advantage. So, as they retreated, the Germans carefully dug themselves in at all the strategically best locations. Go to
1: the battlefields today and the very first thing that strikes you is that in almost every single stretch of the line, the British and the French were having to attack uphill. Exactly as Roy Beeling saw at La Boiselle, the Germans were entrenched at the tops of the slopes, along the ridge of Vimy, the hills that encircle Ypres everywhere. In an epoch when almost all fighting was still done on foot, and when the big guns relied on spotters who could find a high place to look down over the enemy, this represents an enormous advantage. And where the Germans were not on the hilltops, they'd always selected what was for some other reason the best ground, such as at Beaumont Hamel on the Somme, where there was a deep ravine into which they could build completely safe hideouts for their men.
0: Well, after the war, Douglas Haig and the other generals claimed that this go-nowhere, entrenched defence kind of warfare had taken them by surprise. No wonder they said the Germans had been able to seize all the best positions and that the British had ended up at the bottom of all the hills. It wasn't their fault, they maintained, that it took four full years to work out how to wear the Germans down. So the first thing to say is that the General's claim is complete nonsense. (laughs) If you ask why such a terrible tragedy occurred in 1916 on the Somme, you have to start by asking why the British Army had got itself into such an appalling strategic position in the first place. The Germans had been able to construct their system of trench defences all along the high ridges and in all the most defensible positions. Apologists for the British Army claim that's because trench warfare was new and not understood – and the Germans, being the army in retreat, had been able to select the best positions.
1: But that doesn't stand up for a moment. All historians now agree that trench warfare goes back at least to the siege of Sebastopol during the Crimean War between 1854 and 1855. The two sides in the American Civil War in the early 1860s had dug trenches and fought in them for months using primitive machine guns. The British and the South Africans had hunkered down in trenches during the Boer War between 1899 and 1901. They'd even added barbed wire, which had been invented for cattle ranching in the States in the 1860s. As the British army knew perfectly well, as we shall see, the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5 had become a war of entrenched defence. And entrenchment had been widely used in the Balkan Wars of 1912-13. So far from facing a new problem, Haig and his predecessors had had more than 50 years to work out what to do with trenches. They should have known that the retreating Germans would dig themselves in, and they should have had an existing strategy for breaking entrenched defence down. In fact, as much the smaller and weaker army, it should have been the British who'd been digging trenches before the Germans ever got to France.
0: You didn't even need to be a professional soldier to work out that armies fighting in 1914 would dig themselves in and fight from trenches. In the German universities, academics had been saying for years that German army hopes for a rapid advance through Belgium and France were illusory. This would be Volkskrieg, a people's war, in which enormous civilian armies would get bogged down in a long struggle of attrition. Even the chief German strategist von Moltke wearily agreed that it would be, quote, a long, difficult struggle. Another
1: civilian who'd worked it all out for himself was Jean Gottlieb Bloch, a brilliantly successful Polish entrepreneur who made a fortune investing in railways and banking. He wrote more than 60 books and articles, mostly on economics, several extremely long and at least two awarded international prizes. In 1902, Bloch was shortlisted for the Nobel Peace Prize for a work that had consumed him for over a decade.
0: Now, it had been an open secret that Tsarist Russia was expecting and dreading a war with Germany. Since the 1790s, Poland had been carved up between Prussia and Russia. So this war, the war between Germany and Russia, would inevitably be fought out on Polish soil. Bloch, therefore, set about trying to understand the economic and social consequences of such a war in his homeland. His investigation grew into five volumes, a total of over 3,000 pages, entitled in its later English translation, The Future of War. In this enormous work,
1: Bloch examined the political, social and economic fallout of modern warfare. But, more important for us, he also analysed the way in which war would now be fought. The key factor was this. Long-range rifles, new and more powerful gunpowder, breach-loading artillery with rifle barrels, trenches and barbed wire had made defence incomparably stronger than attack. Bloch pointed, for example, to the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, in which the Turks, much the smaller army, had dug trenches and held out for months against the much stronger Russian forces. In fact, they'd given up only when they were finally starved into surrender. With much bigger and more evenly matched forces in Europe, Bloch argued, Armies would simply dig themselves in and wars would go on murderously for years.
0: Bloch's work was quickly translated into French and German. In 1899, an international peace conference discussed his work and recommended disarmament. In the summer of 1900, he gave a series of talks at the United Services Institute in London.
1: Now, it's true that Bloch's main interest was in the way war would wreck the economies of the European nations. But the important point for us here is that Bloch had demonstrated in considerable detail the fundamental change that had overtaken warfare. Given the advances in defensive technology, the strategy of warfare would, for the time being, have to centre on finding ways to overcome defence in depth. But when he gave his lectures in London, Bloch was completely ignored by what he accurately and tellingly described as the British, quotes, officer class. They continued to believe, in the face of all blocks' evidence and every conflict since the 1850s, that they could conduct a war of movement and offence. The way wars had always been for centuries. British officers, after all, were not American or African farmers. They weren't Balkan or Turkish or Japanese or Russian. They were gentlemen. They rode horses. They had fighting
0: spirit. And they were not about to cower in a trench. (laughs) (laughs) So the entrenched stalemate that descended on the Western Front in 1914 was entirely predictable. Four years after Bloch's lectures in London, his predictions were completely borne out when the Russians and Japanese went to war. At Port Arthur, Luyang, and Mukden, no, they became bogged down in trench warfare, complete with high-explosive shells, machine guns, hand grenades, mortars and almost everything else that the British generals claimed to be so surprised to see 10 years later.
1: The British Army knew all about the Russo-Japanese War. In fact, it had taken an extraordinary interest in it. It was the first major war since the British Army's distinctly less than impressive showing against the South African farmers in the Boer War. Uh, It clearly had plenty to learn. Besides, the Japanese were a British ally. Had, for example, the French come in on the Russian side, their allies, the British would have been obliged to fight alongside the Japanese.
0: So 15 British and Commonwealth officers were sent as observers to Japan. That's more than anyone else. And this included a number of senior generals. Several were also sent to observe the Russians. Alongside all these military men was an unprecedented number of journalists. Their books later sold well, but not as well as a staff officer's scrapbook written by Lieutenant General Ian Hamilton, which became a bestseller. Hamilton's conclusions throw important light on the thinking of the British generals. Now, one
1: of the observers, Aylmer Haldane, who was a lieutenant colonel with army intelligence, wrote that, quote, there will be much to be learned from this war... As a great deal of what we did in South Africa was wrong, I'm quite open to imbibe new ideas, as our infantry, as at present instructed, does not strike me as right. War, continued Haldane, would now mean trenches, firing in daylight and moving in darkness. A similar story was reported from the Russian side by General Sir Montague Gerard. But the senior British commanders were not listening to Haldane, or indeed to Gerard, who died in Russia of pneumonia and whose reports
0: were never published. They were more persuaded by Hamilton, author of a staff officer's scrapbook. The Japanese actually finally blasted their way to Port Arthur with heavy artillery. But Hamilton dismissed these heavy guns as irrelevant. High explosive shells were, in his opinion, only morally effective against unseasoned troops. Morally effective? I'm not quite sure what that means. What that mean? Hamilton, like the other observers was much more impressed by the Japanese infantry, which was, in his view, simply superb. Its fighting spirit, he believed, contrasted with the decadent English working class. Well, this
1: Japanese spirit was rooted in the culture of self-sacrifice and loyalty that Hamilton thought he'd observed in Japanese homes and schools. In reality, the Japanese had won the war not only by using heavy guns, but also by digging and holding trenches. But Hamilton believed that the Japanese had wasted time digging all these holes and sending foot soldiers over the top. He compared it to a medieval siege. Then he came about he declared because the Japanese cavalry, the men on horses, had been so quotes indifferent. A properly armed cavalry charge would have cut through all the trench nonsense and sorted things out. In Hamilton's view, the solution to modern mechanized warfare was well, it was well-bred horses. You'd outmanoeuvre your enemy and, well, well well-bred, patriotic and self-sacrificing foot soldiers to overawe him. What Hamilton wanted to do, as historian John Ferris put it, was to turn British soldiers into Japanese soldiers. In
0: 1910, Hamilton wrote another book calling for mass conscription. In it, he dismissed what he called all that trash written by Monsieur Bloch. Whatever you do, he concluded in his new book, remember, I beg of you that the best defence to a country is an army formed, trained, inspired by the idea of the attack.
1: Well, Hamilton had completely misunderstood the significance of the Russo-Japanese War and so had the rest of the British top brass.
0: One reason apologists for the British Army give for the catastrophe on the Somme was that trench warfare was novel and it took the generals a great deal of time and a quantity of errors before they found a way through it. Well, it won't wash. Trench warfare had been around for at least 50 years and a decade before 1914, British Army observers had been able to watch it in close-up detail in the Russo-Japanese War. Ignoring the key role played by Japanese artillery... The lessons they drew, however, were that trenches could be overwhelmed by loyal, self-sacrificing infantry and well-armed cavalry.
1: On well-bred horses. Exactly. Now, to be fair to the British generals, we need to say that the implications of the massive mechanisation of defensive warfare were ignored by military leaderships all across Europe. The French didn't send any observers to the Russo-Japanese War, and the Germans only sent a captain and a major. As historian Grant Dawson has pointed out, the response of all the European armies to the development of new and massively strong defences was to put even more emphasis on élan and esprit de corps and other antique French military catchphrases that called for movement and surprise and brilliance and attacking heroism and sacrifice in the ranks.
0: The British, however, had less excuse than the others. Its army was small and far outmanned and outgunned by the Germans and French. As we see in our series on why Britain went to war in 1914, British officers had been planning a campaign against a massive German assault through northern France since 1905. The British had extensively wrecked exactly the battlefields in which they would face the German advance. The lesson of recent history was beyond doubt that a small force such as the British, properly dug in, could resist a massively superior German attack for months. Properly conducted and properly planned, trench warfare was exactly what a small army like the British army needed. It should have been the British and not the Germans who were dug into all the high ground and strategically defensible positions. In fact, they should have done it before the Germans arrived. Had they done so, the Battle of the Somme would very probably never have happened.
1: Yeah, the war would probably been over in a few weeks. In September 1912, the British Army undertook an enormous three-day war game exercise across seven counties in eastern England. 47,000 men took part, uh, along with 12,000 horses. The Red Army, under Lieutenant General Douglas Haig, played the part of an invading force heading for London the Blue Army, under Lieutenant General James Grierson, was to defend the capital. The two sides were more or less balanced, although some of Grierson's Blues were part-time territorial soldiers, and some of his cavalry were in fact riding pushbikes. It was all played out in front of King George V, and the Secretary of State for War, and representatives from 32 foreign armies and 39 reporters, and we assume the astonished farmers and villagers of East Anglia. It was the last significant set of manoeuvres before war broke out.
0: Those who defend the British Army like to claim that this exercise in 1912 was a success. Newfangled airplanes were used for reconnaissance. Both the territorials and the cyclists proved, surprisingly, effective. It became clear that artillery needed more shells. But the point about this exercise is that it was beside the point. In the exercise of
1: 1912, the
0: defending
1: Blue Army under Lieutenant General Grierson won hands down. But it was not because they exploited the strength of the new defensive warfare. Uh, Hardly anyone bothered to dig a
0: trench. And it wasn't because the opposition was led by Douglas (laughs) Haig.
1: Well, we don't think so. The Blues simply outmanoeuvred the Reds by abandoning their opening defensive positions and going on the attack.
0: Or getting out of the trenches. Yeah, they didn't have any trenches, they just just (laughs) ran
1: on the attack. Speed, surprise, brilliance, mobility. All that had happened was that Grayson had beaten Haig in old-fashioned trotting around the countryside on horseback. The last time, after all, the British army had fought in Europe was in 1815. And it was as if very little had
0: changed Since Waterloo. As historian Jackson Hughes has pointed out in his unpublished Adelaide PhD thesis, military thinkers of this period believed that powerful, small arms and mobile horse-drawn, breech-loading field artillery would decide battles. What they bizarrely failed to work out was that these very weapons made the cavalry useless. The galloping horse was a huge target. It was impossible to miss. An artillery shell could destroy a cavalry charge at two miles. It was too dangerous to get on a horse, let alone ride one towards the enemy. But without the cavalry, everything would grind to a halt. There could be no war of movement. Hmm. The problem, as Hughes points out, was that to abandon the horse was a cultural step that was beyond the officer costs of the European armies to even contemplate.
1: What's clear from the exercise of 1912 is that the British army had not begun to grasp the concepts of modern defensive warfare. They were still riding their horses and inviting a well-entrenched enemy to mow them down. They were still sending infantry to attack in dense formations, with the result that casualty
0: numbers were high. In theory, of course, casualties at the army exercises were decided on the ground by umpires, since obviously nobody used live ammunition.
1: Well, in the same way, they trotted about with light, horse-drawn field guns. Nobody had come up with any ideas about using the heavy artillery, the very weapon that had proved itself absolutely indispensable to the Japanese in breaking down the Russian defences. After 1912, the British simply neglected to build an arsenal of big guns or any decent stock of high-explosive ammunition and they failed to develop any theory about how to use the artillery. They simply left it up to individual commanders to make it up as they went along.
0: For all the emphasis on Elan and l'esprit de corps, not every army in Europe had ignored the new mechanised warfare. The Germans, it's true, were banking on a lightning invasion to knock France out in six weeks. But the 1908 German manoeuvres had also included trench tactics like throwing hand grenades and cutting wire by night. Night manoeuvres had been another key success of the Japanese. In their exercise in 1912, the Blues and the Reds, of course, the British knocked off every evening at ten past five. Uh, for tea
1: and oh, cocktails, presumably. <laughs> the Germans were also building an arsenal of modern weapons. In 1911, an English explosive salesman called Tom Tullock nicknamed Tri-Nitro Tullock after the explosive, was visiting business partners in Germany. At the company's firing range at konigs Wursterhausen, he got an army officer drunk and discovered that the Germans were secretly manufacturing and stockpiling thousands of machine guns. Now, the machine gun had been invented in 1884 in England by an American called Hiram Maxim. The Germans were supposed to be making them on licence to an English firm, Maxim machine guns were huge, bulky things that took a team of men to fire, but they were deadly in defence of a trench. Each represented the firepower of 40 or 50 rifles. What Trinitro Tullock discovered in 1911 was that the Germans were making far more machine guns than they were officially admitting under their licence.
0: The British military had every reason to take Tulloch seriously. Because several years earlier, in 1904, he'd got another German officer drunk and discovered that their army was introducing the revolutionary Spitzgeschoss, a new and deadly pointed bullet. Tulloch had stolen one for the British army to copy. In 1911, he passed his latest discovery about the Maxine machine guns back to the British army. And what did they tell him? They told him it couldn't be true since the official British military representatives in Germany knew nothing about it. <laughs> the British army did not, they told Tullock, intend to invest in machine guns.
1: You really couldn't make it up. The fact was that the British army had never been interested in machine guns. General Horace Smith Dorian was chief umpire on the blue side in the army war game in 1912. He'd asked the British government to supply the army with Maxim machine guns in 1909. Well, the politicians had consulted their military advisers and responded that they knew the Germans were using them, but that was only because the German soldiers were, quotes the most monumental examples of crass cowardice the world had ever heard of. (laughs) The, The British army would not stoop so low.
0: One of the most glaring omissions in the 1912 exercises, therefore, was the British army's complete failure to use machine guns. A few were brought along, But they weren't equipped to fire blanks. So in practice, their gunners just pretended to shoot. Pretended to shoot. (laughs) And therefore learnt nothing about the best deployment. And everyone else just ignored them. When war broke up two years later, the British had just over one and a half machine guns per battalion, on average, of course. By then, the Germans had 80 times as many. And also, the British gave their machine guns to untrained officers whereas the Germans had specialist machine gunners who knew what to do with them. After 1914, the Germans worked out how to install machine guns in fortified bunkers or redoubts. Haig, forgetting the lessons of the 1912 exercises, sent his foot soldiers in dense formations to attack these fortified bunkers. At the Somme, as we shall see, the German machine guns exacted a terrible price from the British army.
1: So the origins of the tragedy at the Somme lay far back in the years before the war. The British army had entirely failed to grasp the significance of the new weaponry that had made defence far stronger than attack. In the face of all the evidence, army strategists still believed that if the infantry were spirited enough, it would prevail. Gentlemen officers convinced themselves that they could mount their horses and outrun the enemy like a fox in their local hunt, or outflank him like a stag on their highland estates. None of this took account of barbed wire, or trenches or field guns that could blast a horseman to smithereens at two miles, nor of machine guns.
0: There was, in fact, something profoundly wrong with the way the British Army went about introducing anything new to its thinking. It would, for example, never have understood how to use machine guns at all had it not been for the individual initiative of an army chauffeur. Chauffeur? As we shall see next time at the History Café
1: for more on this story and others at our history cafe go to historycafe.org there you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do it's also a way to ask us any questions you might have
0: or you can contact us on social media at historycafepod and don't forget that it's easy to listen to a whole series you just use the playlist you can find on soundcloud and spotify there are 60 episodes and building